Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. We began a series last week on the crises of the Bible. Since we are in the midst of multiple crises in our own life, I thought it would be good to look at some of the biblical examples of crises and see how God handled them. And so we are calling this a crisis of biblical proportions. And we began last week by looking at the 430 years that the Israelites were in Egypt, and specifically the 300 plus years, we don't know exactly, but the 300 plus years that they were there in slavery. Today we are going to move forward in the history of Israel some 800 years, depending on when you date the Exodus, and we are going to look at an incident that is clearly one of biblical proportions. In fact, the the magnitude of the crisis that we are going to look at this morning is hard for me to put into words or to compare to anything else that we have seen or known. But I'll try. Suppose, for example, that your house burns down and you lose everything. That's a good way to start the sermon, isn't it? But suppose your house burns down and you lose everything. Now, that would be a crisis. But of course, you probably have insurance that would help you to rebuild. And though it would take a while, after a couple of years, we would rebuild our home and things would be back to normal. Now suppose not only does your house burn down, but you come to church and discover that the church has burned down as well. Now again, that would be tragic. But we have insurance here to help us cover the cost of rebuilding, and no doubt other churches in our community would be kind enough to allow us to meet in their facilities during the process of rebuilding. Now suppose that on top of your house burning down and this church burning down, you discover that these are not isolated incidents. Instead, you discover that the entire city of Knoxville is also burning down and being destroyed. And we've seen something similar to this in Gatlinburg a couple of years back. Not the whole city, but major parts of it. Certainly in California, we seem to watch every year as parts of that state have significant fire issues. Now, the cumulative effect of all of this, your house, this church, this entire city, would certainly be a crisis of destruction, which is my title for the day. And yet, we are not done. Suppose all of that happens... Knoxville is destroyed, but not by a natural disaster or an angry mob. Rather, it takes place at the hands of an invading army, which means many people will die in the midst of the city being destroyed, and others will be taken captive as slaves. And what if all of this took place? Not because our president made a crucial mistake in his foreign policy or because for some reason that our military had become weakened. But suppose all of this took place because God himself said he was going to do it and did in fact bring it to pass. And he did it because of the sins of his people. 
And there is one final element, of course. This scenario does not take place in Knoxville. It takes place in the city of Jerusalem, the city of David, where God's chosen people felt secure. And the temple, not this church, but the temple, in which God dwelt in the Holy of Holies, and yet it is torn down and destroyed. Where do you turn to when your home and your place of worship has been destroyed by the God who you thought was protecting you? This crisis of destruction takes place in 587 B.C. It is such a momentous occasion in the life of Israel that it is recorded in detail four times in Scripture. It is found once in 2 Kings, it is found a second time in 2 Chronicles, and it is found twice in the book of Jeremiah. And that is where we are going to turn this morning. We are going to read the last of these four uh, times that it's recorded in Jeremiah chapter 52. And in chapter 52, it is a retelling to demonstrate that Jeremiah's prophecy has come true. Because the event actually happened chronologically in Jeremiah chapter 39. But in 52, it's recorded again so that we can see what Jeremiah said was going to happen. Did in fact occur. Jeremiah chapter 52. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatul, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out of his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, and on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all of his army against Jerusalem. And he laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the 11th year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for all of the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the, in the city. And all the men of war fled and went out from the city by night by the way of a gate between the two walls by the king's garden. And the Chaldeans were around the city. And they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also slaughtered all the officials of Judah at Riblah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains, and the king of Babylon took him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. In the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, that was the nineteenth year of king, Zedekiah, king Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who served the king of Babylon, entered, or Nebuzardan, the captain of the bodyguard, who served the king of Babylon, entered Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house, and the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. And all of the army of the Chaldeans who were the captains of the guard broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. And Nebuzardan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive some of the poorest of the people. 
and the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the artisans. But Nebuzardan, the captain of the guard, left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord and the stands and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried all the bronze to Babylon. And they took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the basins and additions for incense and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple service. Also the small bowls and the fire pans and the basins and the pots and the lampstands and the dishes for incense and the bowls for drink offerings. What was of gold, the captain of the guard took away as gold and what was of silver as silver. And I'm going to stop there. I want to read more, but I'll stop there. Now, as usual, we need a little bit, actually a lot, of background information. So we need to see the history that precedes the crisis. But it is going to be a condensed history because of your lack of patience and my lack of knowledge. So we're going to combine those two things, and we're just going to get a condensed history that leads us to this point. After the Israelites had finally come out of Egypt, again, we looked at that last week, And after they had spent 40 years in the wilderness, they did finally enter the promised land and began to be prosperous. And God had warned them that there was a likelihood that when that time came, they would forget about God. And that is exactly what happened. They started incorporating into their worship the gods of their neighbors. They didn't forsake Yahweh totally, but they began to incorporate other gods and worship other gods. Idolatry became a recurring sin that they were repeatedly warned about. They wanted to become so much like the other nations that they eventually asked for a king. They were not supposed to have a king because God was their king. But they wanted to be like the rest, and so they asked for the king, and God gave them a king. There were three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, who reigned and ruled over the whole people. David built the city of Jerusalem initially, and then Solomon, his son, came along and built the temple. But after those three kings, the nation divided. The northern kingdom, called Israel, had its capital in Samaria, and the southern kingdom, called Judah, had its capital in Jerusalem. So sometimes in the Old Testament, when you see the name Israel, it refers to all of the people. And sometimes it refers to just the northern kingdom. It simply depends on what time of history you are reading. The northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians in 722 BC, and the people were dispersed never to return. And so after this, Jerusalem became even more important than it already was, as the undisputed place of worship for the people. Now, the destruction of Samaria and all of the northern kingdom should have served as a warning to the folks in Judah. But sadly, it did not. In fact, Ezekiel tells us that after they witnessed their cousins being deported by Assyria, they grew even more corrupt. Much of the prophetic portion of Scripture, that is the Old Testament prophets, were warnings about coming judgment if they did not repent and return, including the man whose book we have read from this morning, the prophet Isaiah. Uh, Jeremiah, I should say. I don't even know where I've read. Jeremiah is sometimes called the weeping prophet 
because he multiple times shed tears for the people, both before as he was predicting what was going to happen and after he saw it had actually occurred. And if you go to the book of Lamentations, a book that is also written by Jeremiah, it is him expressing his grief over the very incident that we've just read about this morning, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Jeremiah was one of what we call the major prophets, which doesn't mean that he was necessarily more important than others. It just means that his book is one of the lengthier prophetic books in the Old Testament. He warned repeatedly about the Babylonian invasion and the destruction of Jerusalem. In fact, on one occasion, he gave the king a scroll where he had written down his prophecies. And rather than reading the scroll and responding, the king simply burned the scroll. Multiple times, Jeremiah was placed in prison or in pits and essentially left to die because people didn't like what he had to say. On another occasion, he was actually accused of being a traitor. Because he left the city to conduct some business, certain people assumed that he was turning himself over to the Babylonians and he was a traitor and he was put in prison again, even though this was not remotely true. He was actually in house arrest when the city eventually fell. And he is treated more favorably by far by the Babylonians when they capture the city rather than by his own people. So from a 21st century perspective, Jeremiah's ministry was about as far away from successful as one could be. And yet both then and now, ministry success is not what is most important, rather it is ministry faithfulness. And Jeremiah was indeed faithful. Judah reached its peak as a nation during the good years of the boy king, King Josiah, who became king at the young age of eight and ruled from 640 to 609 BC. He brought both positive religious reform and geographic expansion. And it was during this time that the power in this region switched from the Assyrians to the Babylonians. The Babylonians conquered the city of Nineveh. You are familiar with that city from the book of Jonah. They conquered that city. It was the capital of Assyria. And three years later, the whole kingdom of Assyria fell and the Babylonians were now the king of the region. But after Josiah's death, things would quickly change. The next king after Josiah only lasted three months. And then Jehoiakim took over for 11 years. But for whatever reason, he decided to rebel against the Babylonians and declare his independence, which did not sit too well with Nebuchadnezzar. So he came and besieged the city and captured it in 597 BC, taking away some of the people as captives and the treasures from the temple. And in his place, he made Zedekiah the king, who also reigned for 11 years. Now, I know all of that is a bit confusing. It was to me this week as I was studying it, trying to figure it all out so that I could recount it for you this morning. But all of that brings us to the point that we've read this morning, to the brink of destruction for the city of Jerusalem. And so we'll look secondly at the besieging that begins this crisis. Now, I do need to comment on a couple of things just so you're not further confused. 
There is a Jeremiah mentioned in verse 1 as being in the line of the king that was on the throne. This is not Jeremiah the prophet. This is another Jeremiah by that same name. Secondly, it was not the anger of the Lord that led to this point. It was the sin of the people that led God to be angry that led to this point. You can misread that just a bit and think that it was God's anger that was the issue here. And then notice the phrase in verse 3. He cast them out from his presence. Can there be a worse crisis than this? God casting out his own people from his presence. And as I said earlier, where do you turn when God is the one who is orchestrating the crisis? And it is because of your sin. Well, I'll come back to that in just a few moments. Now, if you've been to Israel, you know that the cities were built on the high places. They were not built in beautiful valleys. They were built on high places for protection. You could see the enemy coming. And then they would construct walls around the city. And that's one of the most confusing things about Jerusalem is the various walls and when they were built. Because year after year or century after century, various walls were built for protection. So these cities are on high places with walls all around them, which means that the preferred method of attacking a city was not just to come up to the city gate and try to gain access. The preferred method was besieging the city, which means simply that you surrounded it and waited. You surrounded it, cutting it off from all of the supplies that it needed, including its own farmland. That is, the residents of the city would live in the city, but they would leave the city to go out into the valleys to produce the crops. Well, now the crops are cut off. This also included water sources. Though in Jerusalem, Hezekiah had built an underground channel some 100 years earlier so that they could bring water from the Gihon Springs into the pool of Siloam, which was a large reservoir. It would also include the building of ramps or siege works, as the word is used here, where eventually weapons could be shot over the city walls, including weapons with flames. Now, this particular siege lasted 18 months. And you can only imagine the anxiety, the fear, and the overall emotional toil or toll this would take on the people. But it was the physical toll that would eventually weaken them. Look at verse 6. In verse 6, we are told that a famine has now resulted. And this physical lack of food would add to the emotional turmoil, and in this case, would involve serious spiritual issues as well. Again, in spite of all of the warnings, they believe this city could not be taken. This is God's city. This is God's temple. This is where God lives. And so they believe that nothing could ever happen to it, and yet God is going to bring it down. And so in July of 587, eventually a breach is made in the city walls, and the end of this city is near. The warriors who remain, remember many of them had been taken captive 11 years earlier, the warriors that do remain, they flee along with the king. We are not told how that they can get through the enemy lines, but for somehow they do. Regardless, they are later captured and killed and are certainly no model for valiant soldiering. And then the city is burned. The king's palace, the houses, the temple itself, and what's left in the temple is looted and taken back to Babylon. 
Again, some things were taken 11 years previously. And either they were, some things were left or some things were remade. But whatever is in there now, the bronze, the silver, the gold, it all goes to Babylon. Now you remember, this is Solomon's temple. This is not the temple that Jesus enters in the New Testament. This is Solomon's temple. Ezra would later, we'll talk about this some next week, Ezra would lead some folks back 70 years later and they would rebuild the temple, though it would never be as glorious as this one. And then Herod in Jesus' time would expand upon that temple. But this is the temple of Solomon. And sadly, all of this is going to happen again in A.D. 70. The temple is once again going to be destroyed. Now, we're not going to look at that because that happens after the Bible was written. Now, I told you last week that we would, in all of these sermons, we would talk about the deliverance because we want to see how God delivers in the midst of a crisis. And so I told you we would look at that next week or all the weeks. But this week, I'm not going to. I have just mentioned that the temple is going to be rebuilt, that Ezra is going to bring a remnant back, but I'm going to save the bulk of that for next week when we look at a crisis of slavery part two, that is the slavery in Babylon. But I do want you to understand that Jeremiah is treated better, as I said, by the captives than he is by his own people, and they allow him personally to live wherever he wants. He eventually makes his way to Egypt with some other exiles, and we know nothing more about him. So that is the the history behind the crisis, and that is the besieging that begins the crisis. Now, of course, we want to talk about the lessons from the crisis. And in doing that, we are asking the great theological question, so what? I mean, all of that that you just told me, so what? I mean, I'm not a Jew, I'm not a Hebrew, and that was a long, long time ago. Even if I was Jewish, that's some 2,600 years ago. Why are you taking the time on a Sunday morning to go through all of that? What difference does it make? Well, I'm glad you asked. I could, of course, simply say that, well, if we don't learn from history, we're bound to repeat it. But that is not enough of an application And so we want to look at three lessons from this crisis that in spite of our differences and in spite of the many years, we can learn from. Number one, this story reminds us that God takes sin seriously, and therefore, so should we. I mean, these are God's people. These are the very ones that he miraculously delivered. Not the same people, but the same class of people. That is, this is generations later. But these are the same people that he delivered from Egypt many generations ago. These are the people of the promise. The descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob living in the promised land that God gave them. This is the city built by David, the king after God's own heart. This is the temple built by God's design. You know, when we read through the Bible, you get to that point and you're wondering, why do I need to know all of these specifications of the temple? This is the temple built by God's design that contained the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat where God dwelt in the Holy of Holies. And yet all of this is destroyed because of their sin and their idolatry. As you are aware, we live in a day and age where sin is ignored or laughed at. 
But my primary concern this morning is not the corruption or immorality of our society because I recognize that our society is not listening to me. My, my focus this morning is the church. And even in the church, sin is a neglected topic. We like to talk about the love of God. We're good on the grace of God. And those are indeed wonderful topics. But what about the holiness of God? A holiness that requires that we be holy as well and that we pursue actively holiness. I realize that we are saved by grace and works can never enter uh, into it and earn us any favor with God. But that does not mean that we don't have work to do. The mortification of sin, as the Puritans used to call it, the active disciplining of ourselves to overcome sin in our lives and the positive side, that is the active pursuit of holiness, are both commanded in Scripture repeatedly. Yes, we cannot achieve any measure of success on either side of that. That is the putting away of sin or the pursuing of holiness. We cannot achieve any level of success without the strength of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit, but effort is to be expended on our part. And my guess is many in the church are making little, if any, effort in these realms. Now, lest you think I'm being a little too harsh, can we at least acknowledge that we don't take sin in our lives personally as seriously as we ought to and know we should? So let's at least take away from this crisis of destruction that God is extremely serious about sin. So serious that he sent his son to die for our sin on our behalf. And that doesn't mean we should trample on the grace of God or presume upon his forgiveness. Instead, it means we should actively be putting away sin and pursuing holiness. Number two, not only does God take sin seriously and so should we, but secondly, God takes worship seriously and thus so should we. I mentioned earlier that one of the major issues, the major sin, was idolatry. Again, they had not necessarily abandoned God. They had simply blended the worship of other gods, those from the surrounding nations, into their own. And we tend to think that idolatry is not a contemporary issue because of our strict definition of what an idol is. But it is a contemporary issue, so much so that I'm thinking about doing a series exposing the idolatry of modern America. That is, what are the things in our lives that are considered idols? We could also say that they were going through the routine of worship. That is, externally, they were worshiping. They were going to the temple. They were saying their prayers. They were uh, performing the sacrifices. But their heart was not in it. It was external only. In fact, the first chapter of Isaiah, God actually says, what are all of these sacrifices to me? I've had enough of them. God says, I've had enough of your sacrifices. They have become a burden to me. Which is an amazing statement from the God who told them to do the sacrifices in the first place. And yet God says, I'm tired of it. Why was he tired of it? Because it was an external religion only. His point was their heart was not right with him and therefore no, no amount of sacrifices would suffice. So when it comes to worship, let me say two things. First, it matters how we worship. And by that I am not talking about the style of songs that we sing. If that is your first thought, 
That is, he's about to say some good things about either contemporary worship or traditional worship, whichever one he prefers. If that was your first thought, well, that just says the problem is very real. Because I'm not talking about a style of worship. What I mean is external worship, the singing of any style of song is worthless if there is not a heart and mind engaged with God. You remember the story of Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well? They have this dialogue going on and when she finally perceives that he is a prophet, that's her words, she poses a religious question, one that no doubt has been on her mind for a long time. And so as soon as she knows he's a prophet, she says, okay, I've got a question. Where are we supposed to worship? You Jews worship in Jerusalem, but we Samaritans, we have a temple on Mount Gerizim. Where are we supposed to worship? And Jesus says, there's a time coming. Indeed, that time has already arrived when it doesn't really matter where you worship, but how you worship. And how you worship, he goes on to say, is in spirit and in truth. So in Jesus' day, the same issue persisted. External worship without the internal reality. And I'm confident whether the year is 587 BC or 33 AD or 2020, the issue is still prevalent. Secondly, it matters who we worship. That's the truth part of Jesus' statement that we must worship in spirit, that is with our whole being, not just externally, but with our hearts and minds, and in truth, which means we must know who we're worshiping. Again, you're probably familiar with Paul's famous statement in the book of Acts. He goes into the city of Athens, a city that was very religious. There were statutes of God all over the place. And so, in fact, there was a statue to an unknown God. They were concerned that they might have forgotten about a God, and so they put up a statue to an unknown God. And Paul waltzes into the city, and he says, you don't even know who you worship, but I'm about to tell you who you ought to worship. And he preaches to them about the God of the Bible. It's once again can be accurately said of many in our day, both within the church and without, that they simply don't know the God they claim to worship. They think they do, but their understanding of God is nowhere near biblical. Or they are doing exactly what the Israelites were punished for. That is blending all kinds of supposed gods into a God of their own liking and a God of their own imagination, a God that they then can serve and love. And you hear it sometimes with people saying, well, the God I serve, and then whatever they put after that is nowhere near the God of the Bible. It's just a God they've made up in their own minds. Something we do not have the right nor the authority to do because there is only one God and he has revealed himself to us in the word of God and he is the only one who is worthy of our worship. And he takes that seriously. And so should we. Thirdly, I would say that God takes relationship seriously. And so should we. By that, I'm not talking about your dating relationship nor your marriage, as important as those things are. I'm talking about your relationship with God and vice versa. You remember that phrase I highlighted from verse 3? Perhaps when I read that, it got you a little nervous, maybe even scared. I mean, if God would cast out the Israelites from his presence because of sin, will he do the same with me? 
And the answer is no, not if you belong to him. We have numerous promises in the New Testament about about God never leaving us, that nothing can separate us from God, that we will dwell with him forever. Now, that does not mean that we should commit even more sins because we're secure in our relationship. But since our relationship is not built on our works nor our effort, then any lack in those categories are not going to sever or nullify the relationship. We are saved by the grace of God through our faith in Jesus Christ, and this relationship has been sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. In fact, the Bible says that you, as a believer in Christ, are now the very temple of God. The Holy Spirit lives within you, and you are the temple. It doesn't reside in the east or in the far east somewhere. God and his Holy Spirit resides in you. But you also need to know that if you do not belong to Christ, then you are already away from his presence and will remain so until you repent and respond. And that is the answer to the question I posed earlier. Where do you turn when it is God who is bringing about the crisis because of your sin? And the answer is God. You repent and you return. And God, like the father in the story of the prodigal son is always there waiting to receive us because he is full of mercy and forgiveness let me pray father we do thank you for your mercy and forgiveness we we know as we look at this story that we are just as guilty as the israelites that we don't take sin seriously and we don't worship you appropriately. And yet you are so gracious to us. Casting our sin upon your son rather than us paying the penalty for it ourselves. And I pray that that would not motivate us to sin more, but it would motivate us to forsake sin and pursue holiness. And our prayer in the midst of our own crisis in 2020 is that we would learn these lessons and our spiritual lives would grow and we would walk more closely with you and know your presence and love no matter matter what is going on in our world. We could confidently say that we are yours and for that we're grateful. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.